my Govanin. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video I'll be counting down the top five ways that J.R.R. Tolkien affected modern culture. And for purposes of this list, I'm basically going by uh, which one of these items has impacted our lives in a more concrete way. So some of them uh, we may encounter more commonly, but they don't really impact that much of how we go about our day-to-day -day lives or anything like that. Um, and there's some that may be more abstractly important in some ways, but that doesn't mean they'll be higher up either. It has more to do with the concrete impact that these, that these items have on our lives. So with that said, let's get started with number five. Starting off number five on our list is a kind of funny one, actually. Um, you may know that the plural of dwarf is dwarves, but did you know that you're wrong? So... In The Hobbit, J.R.R. Tolkien used the plural dwarves basically as an error. He admitted in one of his letters <laughs> to, uh, I think, one of his publishers that dwarves was actually a personal gr grammar error on his own part that uh, was admittedly absurd for somebody who is into language as he was. In the same letter, he pointed out that the really original, correct version of the plural for dwarf should be duero, which you may recall is uh, part of the name for Moria in one language or another, Dwerodelf. That even gets mentioned by Gandalf in the movies. Uh, so the technically correct version is dwarfs, and you'll notice that in you know the uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, maintains that, <clears throat> although, oddly enough, there's actually a, a piece of trivia I read recently indicates that a lot of people now refer to it as Snow White and the Seven Dwarves because the plural has become so widely accepted, and, you know, it makes a lot of sense. We don't say leaf leaves, we say leaf leaves, and the same for a lot of other words that end in F. They typically go V-E-S. And so it's an easy mistake to make. And the fact that J.R.R. Tolkien made that mistake in The Hobbit and it became so popular, it's basically become the new normal plural uh, <laughs> completely unintentionally on his part. It wasn't intentional for him to use a wrong plural. It just happened. And it just so happens that the rest of us have caught on Apparently, now you'll still find both versions out there, but dwarves is much more common now than it used to be. So, starting off number five with a humorous example, but there you go. Number four, the fantasy genre. Before Tolkien, fantasy and fairy tale were more or less synonymous, and they basically meant children's stories. And, of course, that's kind of what Tolkien started out with, with The Hobbit, but he always had a bigger world behind The Hobbit that uh, The Hobbit kind of just fell into, sort of. So Tolkien had been developing what we know of as the Silmarillion for a long time before he wrote The Hobbit, and of course when he wrote The Lord of the Rings as a sequel to The Hobbit under pressure from his publishers, he basically made, he just went with it. He rolled with the idea that The Hobbit is part of this broader world, and it became a huge fantasy epic. And eventually the Silmarillion itself was published posthumously by Christopher Tolkien, his uh, youngest son. So 
the effect that this has had on the fantasy genre in general is that we now see fantasy books lining the shelves at bookstores, not for children, although some of them can be for children or even young adults, but they're written for adults. You know, they're not considered nursery rhyme tales or that sort of thing anymore. They're actually considered a legitimate area of, you know, fantasy uh, fiction that anybody of any age can enjoy. And in fact, Tolkien would be really happy about that aspect of how he's affected the world because his view was that is the proper audience for a fantasy tale because in his view, fantasy is a means of teaching you truths about the world without banging them over your head. So, you know, whereas C.S. Lewis wrote in a style that you really can't miss a lot of his messaging, the messaging in Lord of the Rings is anything but explicit. There's a lot of stuff you can derive out of Lord of the Rings and other fantasy stories that do teach lessons, but they don't teach them to you directly. They're not preaching. They're teaching you some kind of truth through the storytelling in a very indirect way. And he thought that that was a lot of the purpose behind fantasy was to convey those truths. And that's why he thought that they were for adults, really, because the the younger mind is not going to grasp as much of that kind of messaging as an adult will. So that is a much more significant way in which Tolkien has changed the culture. He's made fantasy something that anybody can enjoy without being embarrassed. You don't see somebody walking around reading a fantasy novel going, oh, I hope nobody's watching while I'm reading this. They're going to think I'm some kind of juvenile. You know, that doesn't happen. Whereas in his day, before he wrote Lord of the Rings, it probably would have. So that's why it hits number four on my... Number three, geek culture in general. And this is kind of a... It follows fantasy because it actually takes a lot of the meaning from the fantasy genre, too. Geek culture in general has become a lot more Tolkien-esque as a result of Tolkien's work. I mean, you can see things in video games that come directly from Tolkien. You can find Mithril everywhere. You can find, um, well, Dungeons & Dragons is basically Tolkien on paper. It, it, you're playing a Tolkien-esque <laughs> world with Tolkien-esque characters all over the place. And part of that is, you know, elves, for instance. We used to think of elves as little bitty sprightly things flying around amongst the flowers, whereas Tolkien made elves into, you know, basically humans, but just a little bit different. They're a much more powerful race of beings than the little bitty fairies that we tend to think of in nursery rhymes. And so that and a lot of other things in geek culture, which is becoming more and more common amongst the broader culture as a whole, uh, you'll see a lot of things in the broader culture now that would have just 10 or 20 years ago would have been considered, oh, that's just a geeky thing. That's, you know, geeks are weird. And it's becoming more and more common for those things to make their way into the mainstream. And because of that, we're seeing a lot of things from Tolkien's world make their way into the mainstream via other means. Video games, board games, you know, the fantasy genre. All kinds of ways in which things that Tolkien started or resurrected are now becoming much, much more commonplace. 
And that is probably also something that he would be fairly happy about because it does get people to think in ways that they don't necessarily think otherwise. So that's why it's number three on my list. Number two on my list is C.S. Lewis. Wait, what? C.S. Lewis? Okay, the reason C.S. Lewis makes this list is because he was a good friend of Tolkien, of course, but Tolkien was the one who actually convinced Lewis, well, not just Tolkien, but Tolkien was a big part of it. Tolkien helped convince Lewis to convert to Christianity. Lewis had been a Christian, um, well, he'd been baptized Christian in his youth. He'd felt fallen away in his uh, adolescence and then remained atheist for many years. And then Tolkien and Hugo Dyson eventually convinced him to return to the Christian faith. And the reason that has a huge impact on our culture is if that hadn't happened, Lewis wouldn't have had the impact he had on our culture. And by that, I mean the Chronicles of Narnia series. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, and particularly the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you don't realize that's a Christian story, you need to read it again. You know, whether you, whether you agree with that or not, it's still a huge impact on our culture because the Chronicles of Narnia have become hugely popular. They've been made into movies themselves recently. And not only his fiction, and, and the Narnia series isn't even the only piece of fiction that he's written since, that, since he was converted back to Christianity, but he's also written a lot on Christian apologetics. In fact, if he hadn't written Narnia, that would be what he was most well-known for. And indeed, it was what he was most well-known for, you know, for a good chunk of his life until he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series. So he would actually, during World War II, for instance, he would actually teach a lot of the military members about Christianity and, you know, that kind of thing. He's written several books on Christian apologetics. And to this day, he's considered, you know, one of the better Christian apologists in the past 100, 150 years. And he that's partially just because of the incisiveness of his thinking, the way that he you know, can boil things down to really simple, simple topics and, and get you to see things that you wouldn't necessarily think of on your own. But none of this would have happened if Tolkien and Hugo Dyson hadn't managed to convince him to convert to Christianity. And, you know, again, you can disagree with Christianity all you like, but you can't deny that that's a huge impact on the culture. And it's one that we wouldn't have without Tolkien, more than likely. Number one, Beowulf. If you don't know much about Beowulf, then you probably haven't been through a college English course. Uh, if you go through English courses in college and get any kind of fiction or any kind of English literature type, and by English I mean British English, not the language English, but if you go through and get any of that stuff, you're going to run into Beowulf at some point. Before Tolkien, probably not. Uh, before Tolkien, a lot of people were very dismissive of Beowulf and a lot of the other old stories, um, especially the ones with dragons. And part of that was because nobody really seemed to know what to do with them. And that goes back to the whole issue of fantasy being for adults. Tolkien recognized that the dragons and the other monsters in these stories had a real meaning and they were important to these stories. They weren't just plot devices. They weren't just for the fun of it. You know, they weren't there just as window dressing. They meant something. And he actually wrote an essay on this called The Monster and the Crit the Monsters, rather, and the Critics. And I'll have a, 
a link to that in the description below. It's a really fascinating essay because he's basically explaining this is why Beowulf is important. And he spends a lot of his time on Beowulf in that essay. It's basically about Beowulf, really. Um, and he also helped translate Beowulf and, and stuff like that. So because of Tolkien, we now study Beowulf. I mean, if it hadn't been for him, we might, you know, there would be some people who would still study Beowulf, because it would, but it would be a much more niche area of study. So it's not something we encounter in our everyday lives, but it's it's a pretty big deal and it's a big deal for anybody that goes through college and studies English it's a big deal for anybody who's just interested in literature generally because if it wasn't for Tolkien we'd be missing out on this really important piece of literature from our past and that's why it's number one on my list so there's my top five ways Tolkien influenced culture if you're interested in learning more about Tolkien or some of his works and and derivative products and stuff like that, subscribe to my channel below, or you can follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore. Uh, I also have links in the description below for all the works that I mentioned, The Hobbit, Beowulf, and some others, and I'll put some links in for Lewis's, some of Lewis's works that I mentioned as well. So check those out if you're interested, and I hope to see you next time.